0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Catherine Knight-Steele, who's an assistant professor of communication at the University of Maryland. And uh, she's going to be talking about digital black feminism, uh, which is her latest book. So uh, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks so much for having me. Uh,
1: this is a great book. Um, it's incredibly kind of interesting, um i once i started reading it i you know it just kind of um carried almost kind of straight through actually in in one sitting it was so sort of fascinating and and it's so you know of the moment but also it's you know grounded in in history and and speaks to debates that are not just kind of present but also debates that are going to be be coming forward as, as well and As I got to the end of the book, I I was really struck by a moment um, in in, in your writing and and it struck me that this would be a a great place uh, to to, to kind of introduce the book and start talking about the book. And and you talk in the conclusion about how you sort of explained digital black feminism and and explained the themes of the book uh, to your son when when he asked you about it. And and I thought that was such a great question to open with. So, you know, how, how did you explain the concept and and the ideas in the book um, to, to, I guess, someone who was, you know, interested, but obviously like um, maybe an academic to be, but, you know, not an academic yet.
0: (laughs) Not quite yet. He'll be very tickled to know that he's uh, being talked about again. Um, So my son, who was, you know, six and seven years old, now eight while I was writing the book, uh, wanted to know what I was doing every day and what I was writing about. And it it posed an interesting dilemma of how to explain explain a a pretty dense academic text to a seven-year-old at the time. But I'm raising boys, and I'm intentionally uh, raising boys, and I'm raising Black boys in the U.S. And I grew up in a house that was filled with Black men, and I'm in a house that's filled with Black men. And what I convey to all of them is that Black feminism is for everyone as Bell Hooks said, and try to explain that Black women over time in the United States have had to be excellent at things like technology and communication, and that much of that excellence is derived from um, being harmed and being excluded in so many ways and having to develop skill sets as mechanisms of survival. And so I always start out by explaining um, not the deficiencies, but the excellence of Black folks to my Black children. And then I explained that um, the internet and technology were thought about as being really great ways and really interesting new spaces and new horizons that people could practice freedom and democracy and all of these ideas that were circulating in the early 2000s about what social media and technology would be. But what we've found since that time is that these are also places that can continue to cause us harm and that the very tools that we develop to try to break free and to try to imagine better futures can oftentimes be used against us and can oftentimes lose their vigor and lose what their capacities are when we aren't really intentional about how we deploy them and how we hold on to them and how we protect them. So digital black feminism is about all of those kinds of contradictions, all of those points of excellence and those points of oppression and where they meet and what that means for black women, but also for everyone to learn from black women.
1: You, you mentioned, you know, the digital, you mentioned the internet, you, you mentioned the kind of, the potential um, of, of, of the digital realm and I guess with a lot of scholarship, you know, we'd we'd go kind of straight into questions of digital practices or, um, you know, online architecture, you know, Mm -hmm. these kind of things. But it was really interesting that you situate the book in a a much longer history of the idea of black women's labor and their relationship to technology in in a way that you don't start with the kind of maybe the obvious thing we think about technology when we're talking about computers or phones, but you, you have a much kind of bigger Historical context, and I wonder if you could kind of introduce that to introduce um, the way we're going to talk about the rest of the book.
0: Certainly, yeah. I I spend a couple of chapters (laughs) talking about a pre-internet age, and I think it's really important that we contextualize any work that we're going to do about digital technology or social media or the internet because these things don't develop in a vacuum and they don't exist apart from the tech of the history um, that we're all a part of. So I start out writing in the book about black women as laborers, and I write about this in um, the in a U.S. context in the ins- period of enslavement and post enslavement in the U.S. Not because black women as laborers aren't already kind of the way that we understand as a society relationship with black womanness. I think that that's a very firmly rooted concept of seeing black women as in service and in labor but i do write about this in part to dispel any myth that of the magical nature of black women which i think unfortunately has come out of what began as a really wonderful premise of recognizing the potential and the opportunities for black women through the the phrase black women uh, black girl magic. But I think it's important that we take away this notion of magic and and replace it with ideas of skills and expertise in order to reinforce also how often those skills and points of expertise have been exploited. And so I write about the long trajectory of Black women in the U.S. having to develop and acquire um, and create skill sets that make their work uh, easier make their work more efficient, make their work better, and then having those things continuously taken away, continuously overlooked, um, left out of our histories, left out of our archives, rather intentionally. So Black womanness develops in this U.S. context as this intentional kind of counterpoint to how white womanness is developed in our context. So we start to think of black women as the laborers and white women as those who receive the labor and black women as strong and hard and white women as delicate. And so it's really important to begin what I see as the beginning of how we talk about black women in the US and how our work, our labor, our intellect and our expertise gets intentionally stripped away in the way that we write about technology over time.
1: And this goes hand in hand with with, with a, a myth, you know, you've mentioned myths already, but, you know, a myth of the idea of um, black technophobia, particularly um, in, in the context of gender. And, and it comes with, you know, you know the, the flip side, which is the reality that uh, the book uh, both demonstrates, but also, you know, tries to develop theoretically this idea that uh, there's a, a kind of a technophilia, uh, which is the way that we should understand uh, both the black community, particularly black women's, um, interactions with technology. And you mentioned skills and, and expertise, and I was really struck actually by that idea of skills and expertise should go hand in hand with um, black technophilia. So, so, what are you actually talking about with that term? Um, maybe you could give it a couple of examples
0: sure so Anna Everett develops this brilliance in her book in 2009 and talks about the way that we as um, academics but also as journalists as policy makers were writing about black folks relationship with technology at this point was really one of uh, technophobia. We were writing about how Black people didn't have access to the Internet or weren't good users of things like computers and computing technologies. And I think her book, Like My Lived Experience, <laughs> demonstrated that this just wasn't accurate, <laughs> that there were whole segments of society that we weren't taking into account, that our tools for Gathering research about who was using technology, we're just excluding whole segments of our population. And so, instead, what she focuses on, and what I try to focus on as well, is the technophilia, is actually the places where we can carve out space to consider that black folks have actually excelled and have set the curve in so many areas of our use of technologies. And we can go pre-digital and talk about that in you know various eras in society. But I focus in the book and thinking about things like the blogosphere and early social media. And so the way that the Black blogosphere expands and, prolifer- and per- um, just expands over the period of the early 2000s, but is do- doing that in places where people aren't looking. It's happening under the radar, so to speak. And so we watch folks Take pieces of technology that were meant to do other things and find new and creative ways to use them that sometimes become the primary system of them being used. I often talk to my students about pagers and how pagers in the 1980s and 1990s began as this way for very important folks, you know, doctors to be paged back to their hospitals. But in inner cities, Black youth were often using pagers in very in Um, other ways and really were the precursors to SMS uh, texting, right, and kind of figuring out that you could find ways to keep in communication with folks without access to a phone. Um, likewise, when we think about Twitter and the use of the hashtag, the ways that that was in, originally intended to be used versus the way that Black users of Twitter have transformed and created a new space for dialogue and discourse that does something entirely new with hashtagging, that creates community, that does live tweeting events, which many would argue um, in large part were at least a um, first kind of propagated in the Black community with folks watching shows together like Scandal in the U.S. Um, Obviously, people had done live tweeting events before, but these folks had found new ways to take old technologies and reinvent them and reinvigorate them. And so what Anna Everett's Black technophilia reminds us is that it is often folks who are kept from or excluded from technologies that find the most creative and ingenious ways to make use of them and to change them and to challenge them to be better.
1: You mentioned the uh, the Black feminist blogosphere as, as one of the kind of crucial uh, moments for Black technophilia, but also um, I guess it's one of the kind of important um, empirical uh, examples and you'd also mentioned a range of, of examples there of i guess kind of technology in use and you know creative and adaptive relationships to technology i'm interested in i, I guess the kind of the ethics of things like the black feminist blogosphere or, or maybe the principles and you talk through um i think it's five principles um in, in one of the middle chapters about um I guess, you know, a a set of sort of ethical practices, positions, actions that bound um, the black feminist blogosphere together, Um, sometimes in opposition, I guess, to, as you mentioned earlier, you know, threats um, and and sort of um, outside forces, but also in ways that were um, empowering and and, and sort of uplifting. And and I wonder if you could say a bit about, I guess, the kind of the the ethics that underpinned the black feminist blogosphere and, and why those ethics or principles are so important to understanding the digital black feminism we have now.
0: Yeah, sure. I started studying the black blogosphere mostly by accident because it was just a place that became really important for me um, as I was increasingly in new uh, physical spaces where I didn't have a lot in common with the folks around me and I found the black blogosphere as this place where there were a lot of folks who were experiencing that and were developing their own little communities online and we have to kind of rewind in our minds to that era to really understand what it meant for people to set up these sites kind of on their own mostly without a lot of experience in things like coding or anything like that but utilizing what they had to create a space that was really enclaved away from the larger dominant group. And these were happy spaces. These were joyful spaces where people really were doing um, play and work and all of these things at the same time. They weren't going there to be sad or feel down or oppressed or downtrodden. They were instead creating laughter filled uh, spaces that talked about community ideas and it's in those spaces where there was the kind of freedom to develop in long form writing ideas and have in real time people respond and have folks respond who were a part of a community of trust is how I think we got to a place of having some semblance of coherent principles across digital Black feminism. I would argue that without that Black blogosphere space, uh, we probably wouldn't see this kind of Black feminism flourishing online right now in social media because places like Twitter don't really, in the present time, encourage that kind of long thought and um, that kind of forgiveness for error and uh, a safe space to kind of discuss and, and, and debate issues. So some of the principles that I outline, that I witness in those spaces and I witness transforming our culture now are principles like agency. Um, so the way that Black women centralize themselves and their uh, ideas about how to encourage and even accept Uh, those around them, other Black women who are doing things that are are necessarily beneficial to them, uh, either financially or spiritually or personally. Um, And this isn't to say that other communities don't engage in this practice, but I try to contrast what's happening with digital Black feminism with what's happened with Black feminism in the past. And I argue that being online necessitates these kinds of things like agency. It also necessitates things like um, self-identification, right? So the ability to, and to determine how one is going to be thought of and called and treated. We think about forming avatars and having to name ourselves and create bios online. That kind of self-branding becomes a really important practice of folks who make their livelihood and create their thought production online. I think the digital space, one of those other principles that it calls forward is understanding of non-binary spaces uh, more broadly and specifically how that relates to gender. So we see in digital black feminist praxis a lot more acceptance and encouragement and activism on the in the part of uh, non-conforming spaces around gender because again, digital technology requires us to think about the both ands. It requires us to think about spaces as being both public and private, of being both personal and communal. And so this idea of non-binary spaces becomes really um, integral to how digital black feminists think about themselves and others. And the last two areas are complicated allegiances and self and community care. So complicated allegiances, I think, just speaks to the way that we are in touch with and connected to um, folks who we might share goals with but have very different lived experience from and how we create um, ways to work together toward common goals while realizing the spaces of difference. Um, And then finally, this self and communal practice that I think Black bloggers really mastered was how to create spaces that potentially they were going to benefit from financially, but that they also still saw as really important communal spaces for doing activist work. And their kind of refusal to detach those two things from each other.
1: I mean, we we should talk about money because it, it's you know a really crucial element of um, some of the the later parts of the book. But but before that, I guess what you've outlined with those principles is an idea of the the kind of praxis of uh, black feminist um, blogging. But also, you then move on with I suppose I'd call it a kind of historical comparison mm-hmm. um, to think about black feminist thought. Um, and you do this in the context of, of particular themes, um, and I was, I was very interested in, in, in themes around kind of why publishing matters, not just in terms of a kind of, you know, sharing ideas and information, but also this kind of specific importance of publishing to Black feminist thought.
0: Yeah, so I, I had the opportunity in the book to do some archival work and and look at the writing of... Um, authors like Zora Neale Hurston and Anna Julia Cooper and Ida B. Wells Barnett and then think about their work alongside some of what I would think of as some of the more important figures in digital Black feminist writing today and that chapter was really important to me um, because I think so much unfortunately is going to be lost if we don't take a note right now of the amazing kind of work that Black women are doing online and It's not being saved and it's not being documented, unfortunately, in a lot of the ways that we have access to our writers of the past. So, one of the themes that I pull out um, in terms of thinking about these writers' work together, even though they're happening sometimes nearly a century apart, is how they relate to the concept of publishing. So, rather than thinking about the artifacts that are produced by each of these women, I think about how they do their work. What is the relationship they have to the technologies that make their work possible? And what comes of those relationships? So what comes of a relationship to a typewriter or a pen? What comes of our relationship to blogging or to um, using Twitter or Instagram stories? And with publishing, I like to think about how we've always had kind of a fraught relationship, Black women, with the publishing industry and how our work would be received, how it would be paid for or um, treated, how it would be stolen or misappropriated often. And what I thought about in this section on publishing is also the kinds of expectations we develop for ourselves as professionals or as scholars and what that looks like at different moments in history. So what does it mean to publish our work through a university press, or in a modern sense, what does it mean to publish our work through a reputable online magazine or journal versus doing self-publishing? What are the benefits to self-publishing, but are, what are also the ways that some of our mechanisms of publishing online and digital ways undermine our ability to be treated as professionals or encourages people to have expectations and unrealistic expectations for demands on our writing and demands on our scholarship. So I was able to kind of look at um, one writer, uh, Jamila Lemieux, who's a really prolific writer and editor, really amazing scholar, a public scholar, I would say. And the way that she has very carefully crafted a career that I argue demands that we treat her as a professional that we consider her work alongside other professionals and that she doesn't diminish her work by allowing folks to kind of determine what she should do and when, or um, mm-hmm. suggesting that her work shouldn't be published in venues that other professional writers' work is in, Which I think a really hard decision to make in a time where it's very easy to just kind of self-publish a lot of what we do. So I think about her work alongside Anna Julia Cooper who fought a lot of similar battles about a century ago, and how their relationship to things like computers versus typewriters and pens um, change, how they relate to this concept of publishing.
1: So let's talk about money. Uh, You (laughs) mentioned actually really usefully in in, in the discussion of publishing just then the, the idea of what are the potential... Uh, compromises or downsides with with different modes of publishing and you know different I guess kind of forms of legitimacy that come with the university press or being part of the blogosphere or engaging in debates on on twitter these these kind of things but but you also pose this really crucial question about money and really I guess you know to use sort of classic media studies academic language the problem of kind of commodification
0: yeah
1: um of black feminist thoughts and and what does happen when when money kind of changes the situation and, and i guess what are the potentials but also what are the risks with, with the idea of uh fem- black feminist thought becoming um an, an online product or an online consumer good
0: yeah i kind of uh Close out the book in this way. And it was important that I didn't begin with this because I think otherwise it could have taken over the whole book. <laughs> There's a lot to be said about um, commodification and about commodification, I think, of black feminist thought right now. Um, but I posed this question in part because I was listening to um, Lauryn Hill's album while I was writing. <laughs> and she asks the question you know, what happens when money changes a situation on one of her classic tracks? and Uh, caused me to think a lot about what the I'd written a lot about what the positive implications were of Black women having these spaces online to work out ideas and to think through concepts and to do long form writing and to form community and to even potentially get paid and recognized for their work as a really positive feature of what digital technology brings to Black feminist thought. But I would be remiss not to also talk about what the addition of money brings to Black feminist thought that doesn't serve us as well. And so I think about in that chapter um, how the need to make our work accessible in ways that mirror what is traditionally thought of as accessible in a digital world can sometimes shrink and diminish the kind of revolutionary work that we want to do. So for example, If we think about the format and the affordances of certain platforms, what they allow us to do, the length of texts, the uh, necessity of picture or a video of imagery, what it takes for something to go viral, um, those things can really not always align well with what's necessary to do complex theoretical work. So we end up with things like terms like intersectionality being used and misused and intentionally abused and misappropriated as well very frequently. I think many of us were excited at first when ideas like that began to circulate in the public realm and people were tweeting about it and, you know, creating viral video content about terms like intersectionality that we had been writing about and thinking about for a long time. But what we've come to see is that um, both unintentionally and intentionally, I think, uh, ideas that are complex and warrant our deep, sustained thought and inquiry and reflection and self-reflection don't get that when they have to be packaged into a 20-second viral video that oftentimes what happens instead is that we get the most surface understanding of those terms, or we get those terms stripped of their connection to Black women altogether. And they come to be stand-ins for difference or diversity, rather than issues of systemic injustice and uh, racism. And so it's, it's concerning to think about how in those spaces where money does sit at the center, where things must circulate for advertising dollars, where people have to rely on having enough followers in order for their brand to be successful, um, we are following a lot of the strategies that other folks follow that aren't trying to do deeply revolutionary work. And that can really have an impact on the extent to which we're able to use those platforms to really circulate our work in, in in helpful ways. It doesn't take away the possibility, but it certainly complicates it. And I think that that's maybe the summary is that what happens when money changes the situation, it becomes much more complex and it requires a lot more thought on our part about how we're going to engage and when we're gonna engage in these digital spaces and when we're not, when we're going to remove our work from those spaces um, because it can sometimes be used to cause more harm.
1: What do you think is going to be, I guess, the kind of future for digital black feminism? The the book, as you mentioned right at the start of our our discussion, because the book centers both the kind of potential and the achievements of um, black feminist um, thinkers, you know, in some ways, it's an incredibly kind of um, empowering and an optimistic story. But on you know the other hand, as you just described, you know there are kind of complexities and um, I guess you know real sort of pitfalls with the digital world um, and you know things that could, as you'd said, you know end up replicating the kinds of um, whether corporate structures or um, you know um, communication practices. That, that actually are quite, you know, oppressive. And we're also in a kind of weird sort of post-pandemic moment, except, you know, both the UK and the US are not really post-pandemic either. Right, right. Uh, you know, and, and we we kind of say that, but actually, you know, it's not, not really true. And there are questions of, you know, kind of politics, uh, actually in, in both our countries, but obviously in, in yeah. the States in, in particular. And, and so is there an element of, I guess, kind of lessons that the book might have for the future?
0: Hmm. This is a great question. And I, you know, as I finished the book, I had no concept, I think, as many of us didn't, that we would be in such a similar place in so many ways, all of these months later, both in terms of the pandemic and our politics. And uh, I think what that requires us to do is to be deeply vigilant about one, tracking this historically. So for those of us who are in the humanities, for making sure that we are very meticulous about tracking what's going on here and how it came to be, because so much of what I write about in the book is trying to rewrite into history things that had been intentionally overlooked or forgotten. And I see so much of that happening again in how we are rewriting things that have have happened in the last year here in the States and across the globe, to favor certain folks, to make ourselves feel better about our shortcomings, to ignore the warning signs that we were provided from those most marginalized among us. And if there is some kind of lesson, I think, to take out of the long history that's in the book, it's that when we do that, when we um, intentionally create absences in our public historical memory of how things happened and who was responsible and how they attempted to fight for their freedom or to warn us in advance of what was coming. um, It harms us all. It doesn't just harm or continue to cause harm to marginalized communities. It really does a disservice to everyone to To not be uh, intellectually honest about our histories. And in terms of digital Black feminism, I think we're really at the beginning of a lot of changes as it relates to digital Black feminism. So much of what I studied in the book has already changed, the way that people gather online. TikTok wasn't even really around while I was writing this book, for example. Um, but really, The way that people are retreating again from some of these more public spaces back into what they would consider more traditionally private spaces, I think, causes us to rethink as researchers how we're going to approach the study of digital technology going forward and the extent to which we can't rely on how sites like Facebook or Twitter give us access to data, Um, that's a really, I think, important lesson for us. right now even as folks are testifying in Congress about Facebook today but it reminds us that we have a task that is bigger than what we perhaps think it is and we have to go into spaces that are not given to us or provided to us but that we must demand access to and that we must respect the folks who are already present there doing the work.
1: Is that task something you're going to be doing in in, in your future work um, or are you going to be I guess, kind of moving in, you know, completely new directions. What, what's going to come next?
0: Yeah, I'm working on a couple of projects right now. The biggest for me is that we just were able, with some really generous funding from the Mellon Foundation, to start the Black Communication and Technology Lab at the University of Maryland. And the kind of goal of that lab and what we're trying to accomplish there is um, building a new pipeline for scholars and scholarship. In Black Communication and Technology. So we're hoping to provide space and funding and support and mentoring for students all the way from high school through the professoriate um, to do this kind of work and to think about how to situate themselves and to see themselves in these spaces. Um, I'm also working on a book right now with a couple of colleagues that I worked with uh, in developing a African-American Digital Humanities Initiative at Maryland to try to provide some guidance to folks who want to do this kind of work going forward about how to do so in ways that are ethical and that center the people and the communities that we want to work with. So, and the final thing I'm working on, which I'm really excited about, and I think is the next wave of, of scholarship for me for a while, is about joy and how we can centralize ideas and practices of joy um, as researchers that are looking at marginalized communities online, that instead of centralizing things like oppression and defeat, that we think about how joy functions as praxis uh, in our work. So those are kind of uh, the steps forward, which uh, for me seem like natural moves forward from the book and from where I was already, because they're very future oriented. And that's what I hope to, to work on next.